What's up, everybody? Thank you all for joining us. We are now in our, what is this, the 10th or the 11th? This is number 10. We're in, we're in double digits now. Whoa, big big number 10. Lucky, lucky number 10. Lucky number 10. Uh, we, got, uh, we got a lot to talk about today. Uh, and uh, as always, before we do that, uh, let's give a shout out to our sponsors. Uh, this podcast is on Family FM, recording inside Canal Street Market. Uh, we are presented in partnership with Listening Party, the creators of Family FM. Follow the crew on Instagram at Listening Party Presents and at Canal Street Market. All right, so uh, we have a lot to talk about, but we have a very, very special guest with us today. We have uh, Luddy's very good friend, uh, Denny Salas. He is the Democratic County Committee representative for the 63rd Election District and also 65th Assembly District. And uh, Denny, why don't you uh, tell the audience about yourself and your work? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Sam and Jason. I really appreciate it. Um, Yeah, so I won my first elected office, um, again, representing the 63rd Election District. um, And it's called a county committee seat. Um, where is that? What what is, section is that exactly? Uh, Nolita area. Nolita, so, okay. Yeah, so okay. my neighborhood where I live. Um, now, the county committee seat itself is very small. You just basically represent a very small area, about a third, a three block radius. Um, mm-hmm. So basically, the voters in my district again, it's a really democratic inter-party seat or inter-party seat, and it I represent about six hundred and sixty registered Democratic voters, and part of the responsibility is actually part of the old Tammany Hall power structure, where they used to basically put in some of their like favored, favored individuals, say, hey, you're going to represent this election district. Your job and your role is to do a few things. One, try to register as many voters as possible for the party. Uh, two, make sure they know who they're voting for, and you basically tell them who they're voting for. Yeah. Uh, good, old, good old Tammany Hall. Exactly, yeah. good old Tammany <laughs> Hall. And, you know, and also part of the corruption of old Tammany Hall was basically, oh, if I need a contract, anything else, you go to your, you know, district leader or your state committee representative, yeah, anybody yeah, else yeah. within it. Do what and we say or we're going to break your legs. Exactly, or, you know, or steer... Uh, city money to a particular project that may be within your Have you area. broken any I legs yet? I have not done any. <laughs> 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 that's out of style now. That's out of style. Yeah. That's out of style. <laughs> or made any money because that's also part of it. They used to, you know, they used to the grifting and the graft and all that other stuff. <laughs> so yeah, that was part of the old structure. Right now, it's a little bit different. You have individuals that either are part of local democratic clubs and then all of a sudden they get appointed to some of these seats um, and they don't really go to any meetings, they don't do anything, they just say, hey, oh, I'm county committee, um, and they don't really take it seriously. Uh, for myself, I wasn't attached to anybody. I wasn't attached to any club. I basically decided that I wanted to run for something, so I looked it up, saw what was available for me to actually get involved in, in Manhattan. I've lived here for you know close to five years now, and I've always loved politics, always been involved in politics, so for me, I looked it up, read the Board of Elections regulations, how to create my own petition, make sure they're legal, wrote my own petitions, and my fiance and I, Nicole, we literally knocked on all 660 registered you know, Democratic voters, yeah. um, got how many people we were able to get. How, many, how many people do you have to uh, get to sign on for you? So it's a weird rule. It's about, well, if it's 5%, of all registered Democrats within your election district. So mm-hmm. I think the number was like 35 or something like that, and ended up getting like 57 signatures. Nice. Um, you know, and you knock on everybody's door, but not everybody's there. Yeah. And, you know, it's also fun because when you get to talk to your neighbors and about what they care about, everyone's very different. And, you know, yeah. you always hear the saying, all politics are local. And it is. And, you know, one guy 
really cared about one grocery store that was across the street from where we lived um, on, on Mulberry Street. And in this one grocery store was shut down for years. Like, you know, they used to have it for a long time, but then the landlords raised the rents, shut it down, and then it was an yeah. empty space for years. And he's like, I'm, you know, I'm 60 something years old. I think he's 67 years old, and I have to walk four blocks down this way, and it's a summer, and I have to go get my groceries. And it's a long time. Yeah, because the, the area, too, where, where you are is, is, it's like on the other side of gentrification. You know, 100%. it used to be yeah. a, a very, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Italian working class area. Mm -hmm. So you have young, hip, 25-year-old yep. NYU students yep. who like want to go to Whole Foods, but then you got 65-year-old guys who are mm -hmm. salty about that. Exactly, 100%. <laughs> you know, when they do that, it's just I get it. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, you know, a lot of other individuals have been there for a long time. You mentioned gentrification; they don't like how the diversity of the city or the diversity of the area has gone away. You yeah, know what I mean, and stuff like that. It, it, I get that. Um, so it's interesting, and you talk to people, you get them involved, you educate them on what's actually going on in the city council level, the state legislature level, what the governor is doing, everything else like that. And it's like a lot of it's basically educating, a lot of it's information and actually divvying out um, and making sure they're, they're involved, you know. So it's a great first step to get involved in some sort of elected office, especially if people are interested in it, um, mainly because then they can learn like what's really going on in their neighborhood. Um, so it's interesting. That's, That's great. super yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. Do you have uh, do you have aspirations for a higher office? Uh, I do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I obviously do. Um, you don't jump into something and do all this research. You know, I started my own campaign committee. So I have to like file my own campaign reports. I have, you know, a web, a really great website, I think, where you can contribute to my campaign and uh, yeah. the report, and it's all through Act Blue. So, oh, you know, wow. so yeah, yeah. you know, it's like I went through the hurdles of everything that I needed to do in order to actually have like a functioning campaign. That's great. Know, yeah, so. Setting up the groundwork yeah. for yeah, and that's you know, and that's super cool stuff. because like you know a lot of people uh, a lot of people do a little bit higher office yeah. when they when they're starting and you know maybe city council you know mm -hmm. even you know some people their first election will be. Uh, you know, state representative or a U.S. representative, you mm -hmm. know, so uh, it's, uh, um, so, I mean, some people's first elections will be a senator, some mm -hmm. people's first election will be president. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. so, as, so, as we've seen, as yeah. we've seen. So, I mean, it yeah. is cool that, you know, that you, you're, you're starting from the bottom and, you yeah. know, literally laying the groundwork and it's like, I, I know what it takes to have this party uh, function yeah. and what it takes, you know, from the, from the bottom. And then yeah, you're learning at the at the, the, at the most the most local level, yeah, and, and, exactly then, and then build on that. Mm -hmm, exactly. And yeah, you're and you're our first uh, elected official. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> yeah, on, on this show, at least that we know of. Unless well, thank you for having me. Really someone in the it. past was an elected official and didn't tell us. Yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> and you and you also uh, work at a uh, charter school in the That's Bronx. Correct. correct. That's correct. So it's a really small community charter school. It's called the Bronx Charter School Charter School for Better Learning. It's up in the Northeast Bronx. We have two locations there. Um, but it's a, a wonderful, wonderful school. Um, we serve about 850 students now. We'll be expanding up to 1,000, um, amazingly because of space, and it's pre-K through fifth grade. And it's just an excellent school. For the last, I've been there for four years now. Um, last four years, I'm not saying there's a direct correlation at all, what I'm about to say. <laughs> but I would say they've been rated a reward school, but also a recognition school, meaning that they're in the top 20% of elementary schools within the entire state. Um, no, it's all you. It's all you. Yeah, it's all me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I don't teach a single thing. <laughs> still, um, still. Yeah, exactly. It's the vibe. It's the vibe. Exactly. exactly. The, energy, the energy you bring to exactly. the building. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> now, it's an interesting, it's great school because what you see is that 
over 80% of the student body population is, you know, they're signed up for free lunch, which basically means they're living below the poverty line mm -hmm. and they qualify for it. And additionally, you know, there's other two elementary schools that are nearby this one main campus, the first campus for uh, BBL, kind of the acronym that we have for the school itself. And when you see our state assessments and our test scores come out and they're just unbelievably high. They just do so, they do so well. And it's a community-based school. That's we great. take all the same kids from like the neighboring public schools. And when you see what the public schools are doing there, not great. And no. Like, you know, it's not, and I, you know, I, I, it's not the parents, it's not the kids. It's the instruction. I know we're going to get into education and stuff like that. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, it'll I'm be just important for our topic later. But yeah, no, that's exactly. good to, yeah, to yeah. Yeah. Saying, like, let the people know that yeah. you guys are doing great work and yes. you know bringing yeah. uh, education and uh, potential future prosper for sure. an education for an probably, area yeah. that hasn't had it for like a long time. Very true. And I should probably get into more of what I do for the role itself. So I do public relations. I do a lot of grant writing. I do a lot of, a little bit of lobbying, not as much, um, and fundraising. So you know a lot. In charter school sector, I'll get into more details later when we get it, but if you want any sort of after-school program that you want to deliver for the kids, that is all privately funded, so you have to raise money for that type mm -hmm. of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so all the instruction and everything else is still publicly funded, um, but you know we can get in more detail about that later on. Yeah, so, no, yeah. definitely. And, and one last thing before we go on to our first topic, just because you're a very interesting man, Denny. And this also goes into our, our, our first topic, but uh, you're also... Uh, first-generation American. I am, absolutely. So uh, my parents from Dominican Republic, and when they came to the States, they actually settled in the Bronx. Um, so, yeah, I got a little bit of New York flavor still there. <laughs> and then, yeah. um, but I, I was born in New Hampshire, but I grew up in Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Um, you know, it's me, I have three other siblings, and, you know, we have a, and I mentioned this earlier, off, you know, off the radio, off the recording, mm. um, when I was speaking to Sam earlier about this, and, you know, I think we've lived a typical all-American kind of life, but additionally, the immigrant story where you've been successful. We grew up with nothing. You guys kind of did the, uh, the American dream. We did. I mean, yeah. like, I'm running for office. They so did stuff here in New York. My younger sister, she's been working in finance forever. forever. She's got her master's economics. Probably she's contemplating whether to work towards her PhD. And she's starting her own business that was just like approved by the SEC. Yeah. My brother's actually a long haul truck driver, <laughs> you know, and wow. I love that because he loves being on the road. And to be honest, I'm more proud of that uh, <laughs> because I think it's awesome for him and he loves traveling the country, does yeah. all that stuff. And my older sister, she's PhD in psychology. She's a professor and she's a William Fulbright scholar. So <laughs> you do all these things. It's just like, you know, and it's a very uh, impressive family. Yeah, but then you have like Trump, you know, try to bash all immigrants, and everything else. I'm like, really? yeah, the American like, yeah. dream is not still alive, but you guys are living proof that that it, ha it, it can does. still happen in this it country. Does. And I mean, like, we grew up with nothing, but my parents placed us in a position. And I get more stories, and I get more stories, especially in the education aspect. But um, that kind of led us, all of us, to like push ourselves and make sure that we're always doing well. Yeah, so, totally. So. All right. All right. So let's uh, go into our a topic. All right, so uh, the uh, the talk of the town in Washington <laughs> is uh, Nancy Pelosi, <laughs> first and foremost, and uh, what? Speaker. <laughs> yes, uh, and uh, and uh, the squad mm -hmm. is what uh, is what uh, these four Democratic Congresswomen are being referred to. So yeah. you have uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, Representative Ilhan Omar, Representative Rashida Tlaib and uh, Representative Ayanna Presley. Yep. Um, 
out of Massachusetts. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, she's, um, backstory, I really like Presley, don't get me wrong. I'm actually a huge fan of hers. Um, but the congressperson that she defeated in the primary was Mike Capuano. Yeah. And when I worked in D.C. as a consultant and a political fundraiser, he was one of my clients. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I, I really, I'm like telling you, I really loved his staff. was actually excellent. And Mike Capuano was a great guy. He was no less a liberal leader, a liberal lion. He was very much in the old, in the mold of Ted Kennedy. He fought for working class people every single day. So he's not a person that, even though she won, and I think she's a great representative, and I get it, you know, like you need young blood, everything else, but Mike Capiano's one heck of a representative as well. So he's, mm. not, he's not somebody who's, he's been in Washington, he wasn't Washington for a very long time, but he's not someone who kind of got sucked in to the swamp. Or anything else like that. He stayed yeah. true to his district. He stayed true to his blue collar. That, that working class. Yeah, yeah, working yeah. class. He's, he was a good guy. He's, he's, he's still a great guy. He's a fantastic person and someone who definitely fought for his district and represented his constituents really well. So yeah. I love, I, don't get me wrong, I love Presley. I think she's yeah. absolutely excellent, but I can never say anything negative to the guy that she took out in Capuano. He was excellent. Understood. Shout out, shout out to Capuano. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's a great guy. <laughs> so, uh, so, so basically uh, what's been happening right now with, uh, with, uh, Speaker Pelosi and these uh, four Democratic Congresswomen as they've been going back and forth with uh, certain uh, jabs to one another. Uh, this has not been the first time that this has happened. Um, since these four Democratic Congresswomen were elected to office, they, uh, they were elected uh, to office in uh, 2018, and uh, they have been now in Congress uh, for a very short amount of time, and uh, they've actually gotten a lot of uh, uh, pushback and blowback from a whole range of people, ranging from their own party all the way to uh, the, the right wing the and the Republicans, well. <laughs> and even to the president. Most recently, with those tweets, himself. Yeah. Uh, so let's get into uh, to Pelosi first and foremost. Okay. So, so uh, Pelosi and uh, Democratic leadership uh, were putting forth a bill for immigration that a lot of progressive Democrats and, to be honest. Uh, what ended up being a very decent amount of Democrats did not think was uh, a good bill. They thought that there was too many concessions, that they ceded too much ground to Republicans, and you know, overall, they were very skeptical about where this money was going towards. Uh, Republicans and specifically Trump have have said that they're going to do one thing and they haven't done the next, and so only 129 Democrats ended up voting for this bill. 176 Republicans um, voted for the bill as well, so more Republicans voted for it than Democrats. Yeah. But Pelosi uh, had a interview with the New York Times, with Maureen Dowd in the New York Times, and she specifically uh, singled out uh, the four Democrats um, when uh, when the conversation arrived, and uh, she she had some she had some somewhat harsh words for them. She said uh, th that they were quote four people that, quote, had their public whatever and their Twitter world, but don't have any following. And a lot of people felt that that was an unnecessary jab, that the Speaker of the House and uh, the, uh, the top Democrat in the House, uh, the most powerful Democrat in Washington, should not be well, uh, speaking so a, ill yeah, of, of her colleagues. Like that, yeah. You know, uh, a, a lot of people believe, especially in the Democratic Party, that in order to defeat Donald Trump and to defeat the Republican Party uh, within uh, Congress, that they need to be a united front. And it should also be noted that this isn't the first time 
that Pelosi has done this. She's also done this with the Green New Deal. Uh, she said uh, about the Green New Deal, um, you know, the Green New whatever. She was say she was saying things along the lines of that that nobody really knows what it is, but they're still supporting it. A lot of people, you know, on the uh, on the progressive side of the party, and again, you know, just people in general within the party itself, even even some moderates believe that that was an unnecessary jab. This all comes, all of this comes at the same time of Pelosi telling, uh, you know, Democrats that they should not be doing that. She, that they should not be uh, speaking in public about their problems within the party. That they should be able to have these have these problems worked out privately. But at the same time, Pelosi is speaking publicly about these Democrats. And so a lot of people are saying Pelosi, uh, you know, wants to have her cake and eat it, too, and uh, wants to have both sides. And uh, this has been a very big problem within the party. Now, Trump and uh, Republicans have gone after, as they have in the past, have, are going after a lot of these uh, th these four Democratic congresswomen. And uh a lot of people are saying that now Democrats once again are in disarray and uh, they're they're in chaos. Specifically, right now. trying to throw a bigger wedge into that that divide. Um, yeah, and and I think that this kind of goes, you know, this this is a generational thing in my mind. Uh, you know, e even though that those freshmen's uh, uh, representatives have only been there for a couple months, I think a lot of people, and especially millennials, uh, liberals who are millennials view them as kind of being the future and being the voice of the future. Uh, and, you know, I, I think kind of as we're going forward and as we go into 2020, uh, that's really going to kind of be one of the driving points for this election. It's going to be old versus young. It's going to be future versus status quo. And she's Pelosi's really kind of dug her feet into into sticking to the status quo, into into sticking into moderation and, and almost and almost feeling like she needs to appease centrist Republicans more than the Democratic caucus and the progressive side of the caucus, which really turned out the vote in 2018. Uh, and it would be silly for Democrats not to uh, recognize that in 2020. Yeah. I mean, this is my issue with Speaker Pelosi and her ilk, is I think the baby boom generation has done a lot to muck it all up. And you've had... In the 60s, for example, you had such a vibrant like left. You had a vibrant community activist group that led so many different changes against mm -hmm. anti-war, anti-Vietnam. They led the Civil Rights Act. They had yeah. so many things. Medicare. I mean, excuse me. Um, yeah, the Medicare got created because of that. You know what I mean? You have yeah. all these different things that were created during this generation because they fought hard for it. And at the same time, they were getting called communists. They were getting called any other name in the book to basically saying you're disrupting society. But at the same time, now it's just like, She's trying to preach unity by being a hypocrite. <laughs> and additionally, yeah, it's almost like 50 years later, they forgot what got yeah. good results for them. What them, what happened, I believe, to the Democratic Party, especially in the 80s, is when they got destroyed by Reagan, they strongly felt that they needed to all of a sudden play their game. All of a sudden, they needed to play the conservative game. They needed to kowtow to some sort of ideas that the right were propagating, but additionally, trying to lurch a little bit more to the right or more conservative. No. So right now, if you look at a spectrum of, let's say if you take out the progressive, you tip the typical Democrat that's in office now, it's like led by leadership. Right now you have the right that's extremely right. What you would consider the like democratic platform 
it's basically this is the center and it's basically the Democratic platform maybe like an inch to the left of the center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like instead of being where they should be fighting for a lot of these ideals, you had them basically say, okay, we need to be unified so we can like win elections in the Midwest, southern parts of the states, everything else at the expense of ideas and expensive bold ideas, ex progressive ideas, which typically that's what has been, like, like the New Deal through FDR, you know, Civil Rights Act. I was like mentioned before, there's so many other programs like the Lend-Lease program. I know there's it, no, it, it takes, it takes backbone like that, yeah. and strength, and I think what you're saying is, yeah. is true, uh, you know, for everyone listening who couldn't see what Denny was doing with his hands. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's like trying but to no, no, put like an inch to the left. It's yeah, true. The, 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 the Republicans, and especially, uh, you know, starting with the neocons in the 80s with yeah. Reagan, went very, very far to the right, and, and the Democrats decided that they also needed to go to the right, so the pendulum swung that way. Yeah, and it has been like that nonstop since then. And, for example, when Obama was running, and when he's like, "Oh, I'm thinking about creating a public option," he's getting called a communist. He's yeah. getting oh, called. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's and, like, come on. It's like, and, you, know. And, you know, going back to what you were saying, you know, um, in, in you know, 50s and 60s and stuff, you know, they did that with civil rights leaders too. You yeah. know, they 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 called Martin Luther King a communist yep. too because mm -hmm. he was talking about social programs and a united uh, labor force. You know, so well, I yeah, mean, the FBI was investigating yeah, him, and, exactly. you know, and, all, and but a the lot tactics of, lot of, of but the ta but the tactics. Of, of calling uh, more left uh, movements communists and uh, you know and even socialists because you know I mean like you have you have people like AOC and Bernie and, and certain people uh, you know calling for a couple social programs that could you know make people's lives a little bit better and they're like oh they're trying to recreate American society in the in the in the you know the fashion yeah, trying of to make us Venezuela, not capitalist or, you know? yeah and, and this and, is and it's bullshit because yeah. so, there already are so many social programs. In America, it's like, do you like the police force? Do you like the fire department? You like traffic education, lights? Public you education. like public education? <laughs> Social security. Yeah, Social yeah. security. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's just trigger words uh, yeah. that just scare a, a generation of people. Infrastructure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah There's tons it, of things that you pay into that you could easily add a couple more programs that you could be paying into. And yeah. also, for a lot of people, be saving money, like for instance with healthcare. But let's yeah. not get too much off topic. Sure, but let, let's yeah. talk about the ideas themselves too, because the one thing that gets lost, especially when Pelosi starts attacking like the Green New Deal or everything else that they're like espousing, like Bernie was with Warren, AOC, the squad, is these type of policy proposals and these stuff, these types of issues wouldn't exist if you didn't have such a great disparity in wealth inequality. Now, when you look at the 50s and 60s, the average person compared to what the CEO and the top paid person in a company make, the ratio was a 31, 30 to 1 ratio. Right now, it's about 400, 500, 600 to 1. Yeah. And for example, just the other day, New York Times had a great article of, I forget her name, but Walt Disney's daughter. And she was railing against Bob Iger, where she's saying the lowest paid person makes an average of $46,000 it working for Disney while you made $66 million a year before. No. Like, that's not what my father wanted, yeah. <laughs> you know? And she's saying this. She's like, that's not. It's like, at all, when you have this he great He created disparity. Disney out of, uh, out of his garage. Yeah, exactly. And when all of a sudden it's like, you had this sense in the 50s and 60s where they believed that you can make, if you're a worker, you work hard enough, you still can get paid very well, you can afford your life, you can afford to buy a home, you can send your kid to college, you can do all that stuff. 
Now you work 40 hours a week, and if you're working at a minimum wage job, everything else, you can't do any of that. You're barely paying your bills. You're barely keeping the lights on. You can't send your kid to college. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, well, that was the American like, dream. If yeah. you work hard, you can be comfortable. <laughs> exactly. And you can take that. vacation. You can send your kids to school. And when I see the leadership of the Democrats now, where they're like, no, we can't say that. We have to go along to get along. We all of a sudden have to mitigate these bold ideas because we're just trying to make sure that we win elections in the Midwest or South, everything else like that. And I get frustrated by it because that's not how you win. You win with bold ideas. You win by going out there and fighting for it and trying to convince people by telling them exactly what the policy proposals are. But moreover, selling them on and saying, this is how it's going to benefit you. You care about putting more money on your table? Well, here, this is what we agree on. This is what I want to do. I'm not just going to propose a $15 minimum wage that, yes, the House just passed. First of all, that should be about $30, <laughs> let's yeah. be honest, and then index for inflation. But moreover, it's that, you know, we're going to do that stuff. We're going to put food on the table. But additionally, we're not going to make sure that part of the Obamacare was if you, go, if you get sick, you're not going to get bankrupt. And right now, you have families that are, can't even afford insulin, for example, and they're either choosing to die or try to find other insulin or try to actually ration off their insulin. And this happened several times already in this country. There's a great article in Washington Post about three, three or four months back where this woman's son died because he was rationing his insulin yeah. because he couldn't afford getting it I read else. that, yeah. Yeah, I'm just like, what is happening? And why, and yeah. why are the moderates in the Democratic Party backing that? And, yeah. and, 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 why, and why are they acting so weak when everything indicates that people want change and people exactly. want... Like you're saying, that people want bold action, and that's why the Democrats always, you know, let's keep get, it, let's, I mean, they come across as pussies. But let's, like, let's, let's keep it. Let's keep in mind, though, too, yeah. that that you have uh, that there was there was a there was a group of moderate Democrats that wanted Pelosi out of of uh, the leadership role when mm -hmm. they when they won back the House and they were deciding who was going to be Tim the, Ryan, the, Seth Moulton, the, 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 yeah, <laughs> you know, the the leader, the, um, the Speaker of the House. Mm -hmm. uh, they, those were people, you know, what, a couple of those, those people that Denny just named and others that specifically wanted Pelosi not to be Speaker of the House. Yeah. And guess who were four of the people that supported her uh, leadership the role? Those, yeah. the, you know, those four people. Mm -hmm. You know, they've also haven't personally attacked her. Um, and, uh, it, I, you know, Until I find it... The fact. Rightfully so. Of, of course. And I, and, I, and I find it odd that her, her center of attack, you know, when it's not aimed at Donald Trump... Uh, is at these four specific members. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, you know, I, one of the things that I do think uh, was in poor form uh, was AOC's chief of staff relating uh, Democrats and uh, the speaker to uh, segregationists. I thought that that was just in poor form and isn't productive in the slightest. It's never a good story when your chief of staff is making headlines. Exactly. I'm like, mm -hmm. that's just... That's I just I could yeah, for me be, I was actually supposed dumbfounded. to be behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. And and like yeah. I could uh, for me I was dumbfounded when all of a sudden that there was multiple articles either on New York Times or Washington Post about the chief of staff or, or member of Congress. Yeah. that is just never somebody you do, you have no clue who they are. Exactly, you know? I'm and like, dude, sit down. Yeah, like, you know, so your that job was job is promote your boss, not yourself. Yeah, and <laughs> so and so you know, so I I don't I don't consider it a uh, 
I, I don't consider Pelosi going after these these four women uh, specifically because of you know their race or ethnicity. I think I think you know what I personally. Well, I think it's fear. I think it's fear of, of losing power. I, I think, think it's that, but I also think a lot of it is that that you know I think Pelosi wants to be uh, whether or not she believes this for for vanity or for uh, or you know for uh, she thinks that it's politically uh, smart. I think she believes that she should be the center of attention. One hundred percent for for the Democrats and. The, and the only real face of the Democrats. And when AOC is making headlines from everything, whether it's what she does to her building her bed in her uh, in, in her new home in D.C., I think yeah. she she sees like she's getting the attention. Whatever attention is not going that's going to uh, AOC is being is that's attention being taken from her. I mean, I think, OK, Nancy Pelosi herself is an historic figure. She yeah. is a first female speaker. She's again a female speaker. Um, you don't really see that happen ever. <laughs> you yeah. know, I think it's only happened twice with Sam Rayburn. And she's um, also done some some good things. She's since, done some great things, especially yeah. standing yeah. up to Trump in certain situations and but making him look like a fool a couple times. My issue is this: I agree with Sam what you just said is that she truly believes that she should be the center of attention, that everything should be focused on her because she is an historic figure herself. You know, during the annals of American history, people are going to be talking about Nancy Pelosi. The only thing is, is that. When AOC was calling out, like, this is due to race, you know, and she basically said that, like, she, this is due to race. Yeah, she did say, she yeah, did say she, that as well. It yeah, wasn't just her chief of staff. It wasn't. She did. The reason, she alluded, yeah. yeah. The reason why she said that, and I 100% agree with this, and I get it and I understand, is that for the longest time you have these, you know, white liberals, or just, I call them arm-length liberals, and I can get into more of that moniker, why I call them that. Basically, I would just say, the reason why I call them arm-length liberals is because all of a sudden, they're like, yeah, I believe everything you stand for, everything else like that, but if you get too close to me, I don't want, like, that's yeah, happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, and you see that all I'll the agree, time. I'll agree on it from a distance. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And that's the thing. So, with her, additionally, what we've seen with, you know, white leaders, Biden, I think, suffers from this as well, is that they have a maternalistic and a paternalistic view of like, no, I'm the guy in charge and I can take care of you because I know what's best for you. Yeah, I'm the adult it's, in the room and, and, you're, is, and you're the child. Yes, but there's um. also, there is a race, like race mentality based off that, thinking for the longest time. You had white Americans or white liberals, everything else, making the decisions for black and brown and any other type of immigrant group, any sort of immigrant group within this country, and they feel like we can't govern ourselves, that we can't make our own decisions, everything else like that. So when you have AOC, the squad, everybody else trying to fight and basically say, no, we're getting ours, we know what we want, we're going to stand up for ourselves and we're going to tell you what it is. Yeah. You don't have to agree with this, but we don't give a damn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think and I, and I, and I agree with everything you just said, yeah. but I also think it's, it's generational as well. Yeah. Because it's also Very this so. the millennial generation mm -hmm. is browner and more diverse than yeah. the baby boomer generation. It, and, and and that's what these four represent. It's true, but it's also a sense of being fed up and I get it. Totally. I mean, I know personally too, like I get fed up. I'm a person of color and I'll tell you right now, I don't want anybody making a decision for me. I'm like, I can do it myself. Like, yeah. You know, yeah. I'm like, I'm gonna go fight for it and that's what I'm gonna do. And I get it. I fully respect AOC's position on this and uh, when she was stating that everything else is like, look you have to, and she's basically saying, it's like, you have to understand that when you're singling us out and you're calling us out is because you feel that we shouldn't have the spotlight. And could it be something more nefarious than whatever the surface level thing is? Sometimes it is. And like, and you know, sometimes we feel that, especially as people of color, because then you're kind of saying that we don't deserve it. 
Well, I think it's also well. Well, I think it's also another component to it is is, is that these four uh, women, and not only women but women of color, mm -hmm. are uh, they're more susceptible to attacks um, by uh, by yeah. by everybody in the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. I mean, you see it right now with Donald Trump singling out these these four uh, women uh, mm -hmm. and again women of color and you know um, Bill Crystal actually said something funny and I actually <laughs> disagree with Bill Crystal uh, pretty much 100% of the time but he actually said something funny he said he said I never see Donald Trump uh, telling Bernie Sanders who calls himself a socialist yeah. to go back to his country 100%. you know uh, so uh, it's uh, it's so because you know because w because one of the things that uh, Republicans uh, in Washington have been saying that it's a uh, it's it's freedom versus socialism that's literally what what uh, Republican leadership has said yeah. and so now they're making it about like no it's about their political uh, views not about their they're you know trying their, to whitewash their, it yeah. and they have to recognize and they know it let's just be honest it's political oh, they, talking okay. yeah, what, is, they and what, is, what do they mean by racism. freedom yeah, well, yeah it's, like, it's, well, oh well I mean that's yeah. just a ridiculous yeah, thing it's on its face either way but freedom I mean, of her to, to destroy the middle class. Outright and racism. <laughs> and I know I've experienced that before. When it's like, go back to where you came from. I know my parents have came. And my dad, I remember one time he told me a story when he was volunteering for the Mike Dukakis campaign back in 88. Oh, wow. And the first day he walked in, he wants to volunteer, everything else. And then they literally, someone called him an Edward and say, go back to your country. This was Jesus. a Dukakis campaign. Yeah. Yeah. And my dad's like, F that, I'm never going to work on a campaign or volunteer for a campaign ever again. Wow. Like, that's it. And it's like, in my, I'll tell you, like, this is, happens. And they're not saying it because all of a sudden you don't agree with the person. They're saying it because it's just outrage. This, this is something that is, I think is all too familiar to people yes. of color. I mean... I've never yeah, experienced you know, it. Yeah. Sam's never yeah. experienced I'd imagine mm -hmm. both being nice white Jewish boys. <laughs> but I think, you know, it's one of those things yeah. that mm -hmm. it's unspoken about, you know, kind of you can kind of, kind of compare it to the Me Too movement a little bit where I think it's like every single person of color in this country has dealt with that in some yeah. sort of way. And the thing is, we're not, and this is, I think, actually one of the benefits of social media is that now we have a platform to broadcast that this is actually happening. Yeah. Like, you know, people mm -hmm. is like, oh, I didn't see it. Or like, oh, I'm sorry, you didn't get hung by a tree today, so that doesn't exist. Yeah. You yeah. know, it was like basically only the most overt, most violent instances of racism were the only thing that I actually got paid attention to. And now it's just like, no, there's a, there's a micro level aggressions that always occur. And then there's a stuff that's always out there. And this is more... This is more overt because let's be honest. I'm like, I first, if you look at what he said, go back home or go back to the country, your crime infested places, all this other stuff. Obviously, very, very racist. But moreover, all of a sudden, when you have the chanting going on and it was like a Klan rally, and then it was like, yeah. well, I don't know why they're sender back, Jesus. center back. And then all of a sudden, it's like, dude, they're using your own words. Yeah. And then he's trying to he's distance, trying to distance himself, himself. Yeah, from using well, your I mean, own that's, words. That's, I yeah. mean, yeah. you know, that guy doesn't have a backbone. But, you know, luckily, we have time on our side. Yeah. What what the the squad represents uh, is what's going to continue to happen in Washington. It's Diversity is going to grow, and, and it's only going to represent what this country is. I mean, we'll talk about. Um, but it's also bold ideas. Let's yeah. be honest. At the end of the day, it's not just what they look like; it's what they're proposing, and what the squad's proposing, the Progressive Caucus, and everybody that's fighting day in day out, mm -hmm. is they really care about the working class people, and they like all of them see themselves in it because mm -hmm. we are it. We've grown up in it. Yeah. Every yeah. single one of us has know exactly what it means in order to all of a sudden live paycheck to paycheck, not having the nicest things, not having all this materialistic things, being able to go on vacations and stuff like that. Yeah. And yeah. we've been able to like experience it, live it, and we're saying like this is not fair, and we see like this is not 
you shouldn't worry about stuff like healthcare. You shouldn't worry about getting a great education. You shouldn't worry about all this stuff. And we're like, we can do that by great policy proposals. So let's fight on those ideas. And one thing, by the way, I would, I would love to see the Democrat as a party do, Democrats as a party do, is all of a sudden it's like, look, they're going to call us communists. Look what they're doing. They're literally torn the line to fascism. They're having fascist rallies. Exactly. And, you know, and, 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 and and tons of these guys have uh, you know tons of Republicans have also tried to paint you know people like Joe Biden as a socialist yeah, as well. Exactly. So if you're going to paint him yeah. you know all the way to the other side of of uh, you know of the spectrum in the Democratic Party as either way a socialist, and that's a good that's a good point. Also, it is also about the ideas because there are members of Congress in the Democratic Party that are people of color, mm-hmm. but they're moderates yeah. and they're not and and they're not as loud and bold with their ideas mm-hmm. and you know trying to trying to really uh, change the tide exactly. within. Washington. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, it is it is a very good point that that's happening, and uh, you know, I, I I think that this is a terrible strategy for Pelosi. 100%. I, I, you know, I, and I and it's actually and it's actually odd that somebody with Pelosi's experience mm-hmm. is has has done this. Uh, you know, as opposed to, you know, everybody thought when when uh, AOC and and um, Omar. Um, and Presley and uh, Talib, uh, when they came into when they came into office, and then the whole the whole uh, talk of uh, who's going to be Speaker of the House came up. Mm-hmm. Almost everybody thought that they were going to you know you know ram through and say no way is is the you know the old guard going to be uh, the, the leader of, of the Democrats again. And they all backed her, and they, sh- and, they and they showed that they could be. Uh, that they sh- that they could be practical and they yeah. showed that they could be uh, you know uh, uh, pragmatic uh, yeah, and, w- and coming into and Washington. Where's her practicality exactly. now? Ex- and then you know for her to then for so so for her to be really the the first person to fire off the warning shots mm-hmm. um, and not even really warning shots at this point it's just shots at them yeah. as op- as opposed to them being the, fr- the you know the first uh, people you know if you had to bet when they were coming into office after uh, the election mm-hmm. who's going to be the you know the first person to pop off you know it would you would you would almost you know a hundred to one bet it would be the members of the squad but instead yeah. it's been uh their leadership and it's been uh it's been disappointing because again it's it's opened them up to more attacks and they're already as as women and as people of color and mm-hmm. as progressives yeah. more susceptible to attacks by the whole spectrum of the political uh uh, you know, uh, the, uh, by the whole political spectrum. Yeah. And, and if this it, continues, it's it's something that Trump will continue to to badger on and continue to throw shots at, even though this, you know, past tweet uh, or whatever maybe didn't work for him and and kind of unified the Democrats for a moment. Uh, you know, we, we we need to we need to make sure that, and especially the leadership of our party and Pelosi needs to make sure that that she is listening to the caucus and listening to the progressive arm of the caucus wants, and obviously. There needs to be practicality. There needs to be compromise. But if, you know, if this sort of public bickering continues, uh, it's going to play into Trump's hands. Well, I'll tell you right now, I think Speaker Pelosi and a lot of the moderate Democrats are susceptible to Trump's messaging. And this is what he's trying to do. He knows that there is a racist, tribal, nationalist element that's going to drive his voter base in the elections for 2020. We all know that. We saw it in 2016. Every single person of color journalist was telling every the media, like, this is exactly what he's doing. Yeah. But they well, didn't brush his, it up. His support, his support amongst Republicans went up after that tweet, yeah, exactly. 5%. But that's, all, that's specific. It went up for um, non-college degree white 
people. Mm -hmm. So just like make there's very specific group within that. I know. I think just, no, I think it's Republicans as a whole. Which is basically their base. Yeah. No, but I think but I think yeah. Republicans as a whole is it went up five percent. I, I I don't know if it was that much to be honest. With you. Benny was I, I don't know what the poll. Either way, he has very high numbers and it's it's been consistent. But I'll tell you this: this is a strategy which I get and I understand from a political standpoint where what he's trying to do is this is an individual that also ran a platform on a populist platform saying, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to give you great jobs. I'm going to absolutely get you free health care. I mean, did all these things. And all those ideas he never implemented. They never came uh, into yeah. fruition. And instead, he basically tried to dismantle all the programs that actually would help his, technically, his own voters. So what he's doing is he's distracting his voters by saying these are the people that are in office, knowing that they're kind of have that nationalist, they're kind of racist, they kind of yeah. have that tribal view. Well, he's also and telling them not it. to believe what's on the news. But additionally, he's also trying to say this is the face of it, just look at them. Don't pay attention to what they're talking about. Don't pay uh, attention to what their policy ideas. Don't take, pay attention to like, what they're saying that's actually going to help you out. He's, yeah. basically, he's basically banking on their hatred for the other, and then instead of the actual trying to battle on ideas. And he won in 2016 that way, and that's what he's going to try to win in 2020 that way. Yeah. yeah it's like, and what, the, what, what team are you on? Exactly. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I'm going to say, say about this, this whole thing is, is also is, is that, you know, um, these types of attacks uh, um, within the party, uh, and specifically, you know, uh, Pelosi, who, who really started this whole thing off, you know, speaking with Maureen Dowd in the New York Times, and even before, obviously, with, uh, the, uh, you know, her public comments about the Green New Deal and sure. others. Uh, I, it, it's uh, it, to to independents and people that are that are actual independents. You know, some people will call themselves independents, but really they're Democrats or really they're Republicans. You know, or they're they're more right wing or they're left wing. But to to people that are actually um, not, that don't affiliate with the party and are just kind of you know glancing into Washington every once in a while and seeing things. You know, people will see this as uh, way more problematic than Democrats attacking Republicans or Republicans sure. attacking Democrats. Because when a Democrat attacks a Republican, people can look at that and say, you know what, that's because they're in different parties. They're on different teams, and they're fighting against each other because this is, this is the way it goes. They're on, they're on a different team, and they want their side to win. But when you're, when you're attacking your own team, people think, oh, that's a real problem. That what they're attacking for is a real problem that they see. They wouldn't be attacking them unless they actually see them as being problematic within their party. Maybe I shouldn't be liking AOC. Maybe I shouldn't be liking sure. Ilhan Omar because the, their own leader, their own coach of the team is saying that I shouldn't be liking She them. has a large microphone. Yeah. Um, I, one thing I also want to touch base on is the gravity of the comments themselves and the rally, basically the KK rally. <laughs> the KKK rally. I'm yeah. like, I don't know how comfortable you guys are me calling them out for that, but you know, no, that's a lot of people no, were saying I mean, today, like George Wallace rally. Speak there your mind, like, man. Yeah. Speak your mind. The one thing yeah. that we have to also recognize is that this is as much as we're not influenced by the words that come out of Trump's mouth or Speaker Pelosi's mouth or anything else like that, a lot of people are. And a lot of people take it seriously when he's like, go back to your country. If you don't yeah. like it, get the hell out. And who are they going to target? They're going to target people of color. They're going to target, you know, Muslims. They're going to target anyone, a sheik who's not any of those things. Like Someone just, like, someone uh, just in upstate New York got arrested for uh, threatening to put a bullet in uh, Representative Omar's Exactly head. right. So yeah. when you have this vitriol, these racism, this racist, racist comments, everything else, you're putting actual people's lives in danger. Oh, yeah. And you're basically giving it the okay for people that may not be mentally right to actually go harm somebody, you know? And that, 
can encourage fear for and other people. Like, you know, especially if you're a person of color, am I going to be comfortable with leaving my damn house today? You know, yeah, it's yeah. like there's real world effects that occur, especially if you're like a black family that lives in a very white Republican area. You know what I mean? And that's yeah, yeah. where I grew up when I lived in New Hampshire. In the suburbs. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Like the suburbs. So it's like there's things like that. It has real world effects. It does real world effects. And these are harmful comments. And when Republicans are afraid to call it out for what it is, then they are, again, inching towards fascism. They're inching towards not being recognized. Not, not a, they're just insulting America. They, they're just they like try not look living at up to true ideals yeah. of what, what we actually stand for. And it can be scary. I try to think of myself as a tough individual that I'm not really scared or worried about that at all. You know, but I obviously live in New York. Would I feel differently if I lived in a different area where yeah. it was more conservative, more anything else? Like then I was like the only one. Yeah, yeah. Not, always, I mean? always looking over yeah, your shoulder. And if your kids go to school and all of a sudden they're getting picked on, which happens a lot. You oh, know yeah, what I mean? yeah. So there's things like that where there is a true gravity. Without the Speaker Pelosi crap, without the Trump stuff, everything else like that, we have to like really recognize that this is harmful. Yeah, yeah you know, there's been so, stories of, of yeah. you know of lunchrooms of kids chanting "Build that wall" yeah, towards exactly. children of color, and and you know. It, Whatever, whatever, whatever the, 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 I mean, the rhetoric is obviously super, super dangerous mm -hmm. and it goes beyond playing the, the political game, it does. you know, and it's, uh, it's disgusting and it's, 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 it's making Nixon, us weaker, honestly. Six Nixon, they've been playing the Southern, Southern strategy, obviously kind of towing the line on racism. Reagan did it. No. Like Ford did it. Little Nixon dog did whistle. It. Dog yeah. whistle. George W. Bush, really Horton ad. Uh, George H.W. Bush, excuse me, George H.W. Bush yeah, with a really yeah. Horton ad. George W. Bush has done it. Like, they all play this game. Mm -hmm. And they all try to, you know, even, like I'd say, John McCain didn't, but Sarah Palin sure as heck did. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, so, and then this is what they got. Like Trump, Trump didn't come out of nowhere. No, I think there's a direct line between John McCain choosing Sarah Palin to Trump. I think it all stems from him doing it. He gave a vocal, a vocal piece. So, excuse me, she basically gave a vocal, and for some reason... Lose no, lots of words, a, but yeah. he basically gave too he gave much. A, he gave, he a, gave voice. a platform. Sorry, he gave a yeah, platform, yeah. a very large platform, to somebody like Sarah Palin, and that infected everything. That led to the Tea Party movement, when all of a sudden you had yeah. a lot of individuals out there, and then all of a sudden, what you have now with Trump, I think there's a yeah, direct she al line. She also yeah. couldn't put a sentence together. Exactly, but I think there's Ironic. a direct line. Yeah, exactly. And ironically, one of the, uh, you know, mm -hmm. not to not to give. Uh, uh, you know, uh, mm -hmm. not to give praise to the Tea Party, you know, but uh, but uh, ironically, uh, Justin Amash, ironically, yeah. Justin Amash, <laughs> yeah. now uh, the only independent in the House because yeah. he just left the Republican Party, uh, is mm -hmm. uh, one yeah, of the, the only yeah. only people uh, on uh, on the conservative uh, spectrum in Washington that has actually been a vocal opponent of 100%. Trump. So. Uh, yeah, no, but uh, but a, but a, a lot of great points. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, we'll see how this plays out. Uh, this is this is far from over, and I you know I do think that if the Democrats are going to uh, defeat Trump and defeat the Republicans uh, in 2020, then they're going to have to get on the same page and get more united and uh, not yeah. and, and, and not uh, do the bickering back and forth. But uh, yeah, we, we go on and on about this all day. We'll go to our second segment in a moment or so, but we will be right back. All right, and we are back with uh, part B of this uh, of this podcast. Right now, uh, we again uh, have our very very special guest, uh, Denny Salas, with us, who is uh, 
somewhat of an education expert, uh, being involved in uh, the educational system. Uh, so, uh, so yes, yeah, so uh, there's a lot of talk around uh, education, and uh, you know, specifically uh, where funds are going. I think is a is a large part of education. Uh, there's uh, you know, it, all over the news, there have been uh, uh, headline grabbers revolving around education, whether it's uh, teacher strikes, demanding uh, uh, raises in their wages. Uh, this is happening all over the country, you know, from California to West Virginia. Sure. Um, and uh, then you have uh, people that are uh, working in uh, the educational system that are in, uh, lower, uh, in the, the lower part of, uh, of the tier, you know, the, pre the pre-K and the kindergarten that aren't making as much mm -hmm. as uh, even the elementary school uh, uh, teachers and the middle school, high school teachers. Yeah. Um, and uh, you, uh, you have a lot of debate over uh, whether or not um, funds are being allocated to the right places within uh, these programs, uh, whether they be uh, public schools or whether they be charter schools uh, within uh, certain communities. So, uh, and including uh, public uh, colleges as well. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, so let's, uh, let's, let's get right into it. Uh, let's let's start let's start first off because uh, I mean this has been a big topic uh, with uh, teacher strikes um, you know like I said throughout the whole country mm -hmm. um, teachers have been striking specifically in the last year or so mm -hmm. there's really been a movement uh, within uh, the teacher workforce to uh, to strike against uh, the, the schools um, and uh, you know in the in the, the, the communities and the cities of uh, what they're that are that are that are paying these people and they feel that they're being uh, underpaid for their efforts uh, so. Uh, Denny, uh, what, what's your thoughts on all this? I mean, yes, they are 100% being underpaid. I think all teachers are being underpaid. Um, I like education in America is not necessarily perfect, but it is the number one anti-poverty program that we have across the nation. Mm. No matter what, it offers the most avenue uh, for success if you stick with it and you just go through it, and it helps. It's it's absolutely the most effective now. I believe teachers are actually typically underpaid about twenty to thirty thousand dollars. You have starting pay ranges depending on where you're from. You know, we mentioned pre-K um, teachers and some K. They're only making in the twenties, and then you have some of the other teachers in the higher end, not not dependent on tenure, that are making like forty to fifty thousand. And mm -hmm. these are individuals that are dedicating their life, dedicating our children. This is America's children. Let's stop and start and stop no. there. And they're going through tons of training. They're going through their master's degrees. They're like, they're, they're doing so many things. They're gonna teach certification. They're gonna master's degrees. They have bills up to yin yang. A lot of them don't even, they don't, can't even afford to live where they're teaching. Yeah, you have so to really want to be a teacher to, to really actually be a teacher exactly. with the, with those. Wages. And I'm sure, and I'm sure that's exactly. a major problem, <laughs> uh, specifically in New York City in New York and, City and places, you know, problem. places where the rent is so high. Yeah, you, know? you either packed into apartment, live in like a model house, basically, <laughs> when you get like to you be, all of a sudden you're packed in with like six, seven different people, or you got to commute an hour. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, we had plenty of teachers least. in the Bronx <laughs> that are like live way up in North New York and they just drive into the Bronx. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just because they can't afford to live even in the area where they teach and it's better to be part of the community especially as a teacher because these are kids that you're engaging with on a daily basis but additionally you can run into parents and you can say hey your kid hasn't been doing your homework and stuff like that it becomes stronger makes when you're you able makes to you do care that. more it too because you, you don't have more. to also rush to get home at exactly. the end of the day you can hang around and meet with teachers like, meet meet with parents like you were saying and not to go and not to go off topic but that's mm -hmm. that's specifically you know part of the conversation with policing as well yeah. you know oh, that, that there's community policing uh, you know that mm -hmm. that a lot of the police officers uh, in in certain mm -hmm. communities around the country are not are not uh, from the communities that they're policing. Sure. So, I mean, it works so why, why would the they same care way. About it, yeah. Exactly yeah. right. I mean, 
Yeah, I, I you know, and I said earlier, I do really believe that there should be a massive pay raise for all teachers across the nation. Um, but moreover, it should come with accountability. And one of the things that we don't necessarily have, at least in traditional public school systems, is a lot of accountability. And you have the Obama administration try to implement a lot of reforms, even right now the Trump administration try to implement a lot of them, is, like, listen, we have assessments, everything else, and if the, t- if the kids are not performing, then you shouldn't have a job, you know? And mm. it's as harsh as that sounds, it's true. And it absolutely is accurate. We, they shouldn't. And, you know, I've, I've, we talked about this offline before, but I'll mention it now because it, it's a segue into not only teacher pay performance, but addition accountability. And we, the, the charter school that I work for, we're up in the Northeast Bronx. And there's two elementary schools that are nearby. I'm not going to name them, just, you know, out of respect for them. Um, but we all have the same exact kids from the same community, everything else. The socioeconomic levels are exactly the same. There's absolutely no difference. But all of a sudden, for the last four years in a row for our school, we've been rated in the top 20% of elementary schools within the state. Our student assessments are incredible. And moreover, they're getting into great uh, middle schools. They're going to great high schools. And I'll give you a, a story about this particular charter school. We, this charter school started in the basement of a church with 50 students back in 2004. 42 out of the 50 went to college. All right. <laughs> That's an uh, incredible amount. Yeah. And when you look at the socioeconomic level, over 80% live below the poverty line. So you see the opportunity that comes with a great education. And it has nothing. I, you can argue till you're blue in the face, um, which a lot of teachers unions try to do, that you know it's the parents, all this other stuff. There's so many other issues that are involved, large classrooms. And I agree that large classrooms an issue, even buildings, everything else. That's another discussion we can get into. But at the end of the day, is how effective is your teacher? How much does your teacher care? How much support are they getting? How much teacher training are they getting? Are they are you are you f- enforcing any sort of you know performance management on the teacher themselves to make sure they're actually doing their job? And a lot of that does not occur in a traditional public school. Yeah. They don't like and you know there's a difference. Additionally, there's a state assessments, but then there's school assessments. And all of a sudden, where you see this wide disparity, and there's also again, I testified at the City Council Education um, hearing about about two or three weeks ago. And one of the council members said, is like, let me, let me see this. Why am I seeing from third to fifth grade, where they start really state, like state assessments or student assessments, why am I seeing the school assessment saying that these particular students are passing at a 70% rate, but yet they have an 8% state assessment rate? What you're seeing is them gimmick and give them such a lower academic like test or like lower ability or academic you know lower ability test for them to take that they're not actually pushed they're not actually being challenged and all of a sudden they take a state assessment and they're failing it and they're only doing this so they can push the kids. Yeah, along. a lot of teachers are just not caring in these areas they're and they're caring. and they're just pushing them along. They're just pushing them along. A lot of that probably comes back to salary as well. You know, it's the, it's they they probably don't. Some of it has to come back to salary this is a little why bit. I'll disagree with that, and because, for example, let me get into the what a what a charter school yes, is. Yes, please, um, please, I, because I, I'm sure a lot of people do not yeah, know. Yeah, and, like, and, and also, what are you guys doing there that you feel makes you guys successful right. more than the public schools around you? And this, I'll tell you, I think there's um, there's a there's an organizational chart I think that works really well, but additionally, a number of things, and I'll get into it as well. But this is what I feel is one of the biggest issues. Um, one. 
you don't have accountability, and I'll get into more specifics, but let's say at BBL, for example, what our school has, right? We have a board of trustees, and the board of trustees is comprised of not only professionals that come from the community, but also parents groups as well. Like, for example, the PTA has a representative that sits on the board, all right? Mm -hmm. And it turns over, every board seat turns over every two years, depending if people want to re-up or we recruit new board members, whatever. But additionally, the board of, board of trustees, and it's just like a private school, um, they have their power to hire an executive director. That executive director has all the hiring and budgeting power. So he can hire or fire whatever principals they are, whatever teachers they are, and they all have performance reviews, and that holds them accountable. Now, traditional charter schools, at least especially in New York, because it's going to be different depending on what state you're in, mm -hmm. but I can tell you, at least I can speak on behalf on how charter schools are set up in Massachusetts, New York, D.C., and New Jersey. Um, specifically in New York, though, since you know, we're here, um, charter schools are all publicly funded, but they're only publicly funded at around a 65 to 70% rate compared to traditional public schools. So, for example, per pupil funding in New York, if you go to a traditional public school, it's about $24,000. If your kid goes to a charter school, you basically getting around fourteen, seven dollars to $15,000. So there's a massive shortfall. Now, where does that money come up short? A lot of after-school programs. And you know, part of my job, like I mentioned earlier, is that I raise, have to do fundraising, write grants, everything else, so we can support a lot of the slate of the after-school programs that our school has. Mm. Um, and that's working in partnerships. You know, if you have relationships with companies, everything else like that. Um, for example, one of the greatest things I know I was able to start there is um, a coding program, a coding, a coding competitive robotics team plus uh, engineering program there. Wow. And I was able to start that mainly because I got funding from Nike because one of my friends is a top coder at Nike. You know, nice. so, you know, he's actually the best man at my wedding, to be honest with you. But, you know, um, <laughs> what's he, his name? Yeah, uh, John, John Apostolos. Shout out to John, shout out <laughs> yeah, to John. John, <laughs> we've been friends for like 25 years, so I've known this kid my entire life. Um, but additionally, like, I've been able to start that. I started, I got a city council grant to start a financial literacy program for parents, and I'm now I'm trying to implement that within the mathematics curriculum so it can actually get taught from an early age, from pre-K going all the way throughout. And you learn so much. I used to be a stockbroker. My first job at a college, I was a stockbroker. I did that for three years before I left to work in politics. But there's, there's things like that where it's all about accountability, and they're not union shops. And I'm not trying to bash unions because my father was in a union forever, so I know there's so much great benefits to that, especially for workers' rights, for worker protections. But in the traditional public school system, there's too much bureaucracy. There's too much, too many hurdles that get in the way for firing a bad teacher. And cause and blockade. It cause blockade. But additionally, you know, a lot of them get sick and tired. Like they don't have enough support in the classroom. To classrooms can be too large. But additionally, they don't care anymore, and, you mm. know, and you see them, see some of them that they're just there to collect a paycheck. Now, I talked about this with Jason um, a couple of days ago, and we had a phone call where there's something called a rubber room. Do you guys know what the rubber room is? No, I have this no clue. This blew my mind. This okay. So in New York State, and I'm not sure about any other state, but in New York State, if you are that bad of a teacher, you get fired. Well, you don't, no, sorry, you get fired from the school that you're teaching at, but if they're not able to place you into another school, you go into the rubber room. And the rubber room basically means that from whatever the traditional school hours that you're supposed to be teaching, you have to go in there from that time and you're collecting a full salary until they either place you or they don't. And you can still collect 
the full salary, pension, everything else. So what do you do in this room? You just read. You just hang out. You're just hanging out and you're reading. And that's, you can be on your phone. You can be on your phone. You can read. Actually, I don't think is you're allowed to be on your phone, but I think you have to read. You, you basically bring a book. Is it only for tenured wow. teachers? It's not for tenured teachers. So it's for, for any teachers. teachers. For all teachers in New York. So you could be a teacher for one year and you can be in the rubber room. Yep. You could, a, you could be a teacher for one day and be in the rubber room. So if you're, so if you're like really a shithead, it's almost incentivizes you to go to the rubber room. I mean, if you, if you really just want to collect the salary, yeah. Yeah. So question. Yeah. Uh, so um, getting back a little bit to charter schools, sure. um, obviously, you know, I can understand uh, certain feelings around uh, around this topic, but just want to just want to get you know a uh, more nuanced opinion from you about it. Uh, sure. So uh, you have you have politicians. And groups, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we talked about Senator Sanders before. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm assuming you you know that he's calling for a moratorium on on charter schools, and yeah. uh, mm -hmm. the NAACP has has uh, been uh, advocating that for a little bit now. Which makes no sense because black and so brown yeah. What's your, what's so, like, yeah. so what is your opinion when you hear Senator Sanders' proposals or or NAACPs or if they're different or what wh what's your general feeling towards that? I think it's nonsensical. Number one. Okay. Like that would just be, I'll just flat out say that. Now, right now, actually in New York State, charter schools have reached the cap, meaning that there's no new charter schools that are able to actually be created right now. I think the cap number is 289 or whatever. Uh -huh. Now, what you've, now I want to go back to why charter schools have been successful, especially somewhere like New York State, is because there is strong accountability measures. And additionally, you also have to reapply every five years to keep your charter school open. And not only do you have to prove that you have done well for the students, that they've succeeded in the classroom, they succeeded not only in state assessments, but additionally that you actually are practicing a high level of community involvement. So your school is actually based in the community you're getting involved in and you're accepting all this stuff. It's like, you know, you're accepting mm -hmm. kids and you're actually doing what's right, what's best for the entire community itself. So every single charter school in New York State has to go through a renewal process. They have to prove they have to prove it and they have to stay open saying like, you know, this is a good thing. This is we've done very well. Now, you don't have that with public schools, traditional public schools. If a school is failing, that school is going to stay open. You know, Mayor de Blasio implemented a renewal school program where he was shutting down bad schools, but then he couldn't get these kids into other schools that are going to do any better. So what happened is just they, they kept them open. Now they're still there. The schools are still operating and they're still failing. No. So well, what do you do? Well, but 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 then again, also, you yeah. know, what do you do in a place like in a place like New York City where there's limited amount of space and and, you know, if you shut down a school, you then then then, you know, where where are those kids going to go? Cuomo brought up a strong point the other day where we spend in New York State more money than our state in the nation mm -hmm. per student, per pupil funding. And our outcomes are ranked 22nd. Don't argue that that's money. We know it's not money. Yeah. <laughs> and the issue is really accountability. Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. a really performance. And it's teacher performances. Let's get on. Let's be honest. And let, I'll give you another example of how charter schools have been, have positive effect. Now, again, I'm not against great performance traditional public schools because there's a lot of them in New York State. Mm -hmm. There really is. There's a lot of them, especially when you look at the specialized high school systems, everything else. Just a side note, there's a big debate on increasing the number of uh, people of color that attend these schools. Of course. So it's to get rid of the entrance exams, but additionally just accept the, the, the Blasio's plan is to accept the top 7%. I would like to see probably the top 5% instead of 7% because it does water down some of like the abilities of there. Mm -hmm. um, but additionally, what I would like to see this one senator, state senator, I can't remember his name right now, but he wants to also double the amount of specialized high schools. Mm -hmm. And I would love to see that. Honestly, why do we have eight? Okay, I, 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 yeah. yeah, it's very arbitrary. But sorry. 
and they're and they're eight and they're eight and they're eight scattered around you know the city. So exactly. you know that would help. You, you know you, you I think you have like one or two in Queens. You have mm -hmm. one Bronx Science all yeah. the way up in the Bronx. Yeah. You have one Brooklyn Tech. You yeah. know then you have Stuyvesant downtown. Exactly. Uh, so uh, he'll bring it to some other other communities. Yeah, I'm like that's. And let's talk about how do you how do you pref how do you do better for public schools too? And then one, I do believe that you first increase specialized schools like just double that number make it 20 make it 30 you know like obviously there is a curriculum that's successful within those schools that you can make them so much better mm -hmm. and you can actually replicate this in other high schools and actually accept more kids and then make it more diversified and be more reflective of the city itself because there's so many smart kids here but additionally you obviously have best practices now remember that charter schools originally were created to be test centers in order to improve failing public schools they were supposed to lead as an example in order how public schools can change and do better, but they haven't been adopted those practices. Now you do have a group here, um, a lobbying organization called the NYC Charter School Network. And what they do is they take some of the best charter schools, they say, hey, what type of curriculum you have? What type of teacher training? And that's one thing that I should mention about our school. We spend a lot on teacher training, a lot of time on teacher training, a lot of time on teacher evaluations. Um, so many school visits, there's like, there's a team leader for each grade. Additionally, there's a, you know, a professional development um, person for each grade, and all they do is basically watch the teachers, say, hey, this way you can do better, everything else. So there's tons of evaluation and performance review, and also there's weekly meetings within all the teachers with grade specifics saying, hey, I'm having issues. If I'm a teacher, if I'm having an issue with, let's say, a behavioral issue, how do mm -hmm. I deal with that? So it's very collaborative. Like Those type of things are effective, and I'm not sure if that happens in traditional public school, to be honest with you. Uh, but moreover, sorry, going back to another thing, and I know you want to say something, but... No, yeah. um, I'm learning a lot, though. So there's another thing where it's a, more of a collaborative approach where charter schools do want to, like, export a lot of their ideas and what's working within the classrooms. Like, what are they doing to actually better this child and actually give the opportunity? Because I mentioned education, I said it before, education is the number one anti-poverty measure that we have in this country. We should constantly be seeking to perfect that. We yeah. constantly be pouring. That's the biggest investment. It's the best investment. Well, especially, especially you know, when, when uh, we're, we're falling behind countries like India and China and yeah. in, in, uh, in the STEM section, mm -hmm. the sciences. Yeah. You know, if we want to be the forefront of uh, this green future, mm -hmm. uh, we're going to have to have a, a workforce that, that knows uh, science, that, that knows uh, engineering. Exactly. Now, the one thing that I worry about with Democrats and me being a Democrat is their inability to take on, let's say, teachers' unions. And mm -hmm. the problem is I get it. It's a political matter. A lot of it is that unions get out the votes. They can, they, there's two things that you want from some sort of, or some sort of political organization that's going to support you. You either want money for the campaign or you want votes. What they're going to do, if, you're gonna, if they're going to get support from a teachers' unions, what's typically going to happen is they're going to get out the vote but additionally, they're going to be the people that's going to be canvassing in your neighborhood, knocking on the doors, exactly. all GLTV efforts, everything else like that. Well, it also and sounds like it. when you criticize a union, it also sounds like you're like anti-work. I start off, I strongly believe teachers should be paid well. And I totally believe that they should be making 60, 70, 80,000 and like starting off. And yeah, then, yeah. you know, whatever raises they get based on performances, everything else after that. But I strongly believe in accountability. Now, I want to give you another example of where education reform did work exponentially well and it was the most drastic measure anywhere in the country has ever taken and that was in New Orleans. After Hurricane Katrina, be, I, should, I should say that before Hurricane Katrina, 
there were 24 federal indictments against the school board in Louisiana because of people just stealing money, stealing mm -hmm. education money. Wow. And you had the worst performing schools almost in the country, in, in, in New Orleans. After Hurricane Katrina, the state saw an opportunity and basically shut down almost every single traditional public school except for the highest performed one, which was only 5%. <laughs> so, and then they turned everything over, state run, but, uh, but basically empowered a charter school network in order to go in there and basically expand the whole thing. Since charter schools have been in existence in New Orleans, now it's about 98% of student population attends a charter school in New Orleans. You have a, um, a performance gap increased by 15%, you almost have only a minor difference between performance of white, black, and brown students now. They almost close that gap, that historical gap that you've always heard about, and they've done very well with the students have been going to college, they've been staying in college, and they're doing really well. Now, they did pass something last year where they've basically gone back to local control, and some parents are a little worried about it, and some are not. Um, but we'll see how that happens. But for the longest time after Katrina, with this implementation of education reform and accountability measures and everything else, what you saw was an immense, immense improvement in educational outcomes for all students in New Orleans. Um, so and also, what I want to talk about one thing that you mentioned before, it's weird to me when you have Democrats who say they care about communities of color, but yet they don't want to listen to the parents. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, you have a large number of black and brown parents that send their kids to charter schools, and they are so pleased there because they've received a great education. They're very vocal about it. But additionally, it's almost like what I mentioned with Pelosi and the AOC situation, where sometimes you have this paternalistic view, the maternalistic thing, where they're basically saying, no, we know better. Mm, true, yes. but but you know, and I'm learning a lot. Yeah. But uh, you know, I, this is this I is can a talk topic. Your ear off on this one. Yeah, no, this is a topic that I'm very interested <laughs> in, and I, you know, and I and I and I, you know, I'm far from an expert on it. Mm -hmm. But you know, play devil's advocate sure. here, real quick. No, please do. So so you know, one of the things that I'm looking at right now that you know, according to the Washington Post, when we're talking about uh, you know accountability and we're talking about management of funds, you mm -hmm. know, and specifically in California, according to the Washington Post, over 50 million dollars in total was stolen um, from uh, mismanagement within charter schools. LA Times reported that 8.8 that .8 million went into the bank accounts of the char uh, 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 and charitable trusts of the charter's management company leaders. So when, when, thing, when people hear things like that, and obviously, you know, you could say, well, that's California and this is New York and, you know, and, and people are going to do certain things. There are going to be bad people in certain industries and good people in certain industries. And, you know, the, just because there's going to be bad people in certain industries, that doesn't mean to you know, to totally, uh, you know, prohibit uh, sure. a whole industry. Mm -hmm. How how can basically my how question is, is how, like, how, 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 how do you that? how yeah how do you stop that you know and how do you and, and how do you hold those people actually accountable? I'll tell you, I think it's very different when California. I don't know what their charter school kind of charter like you know for lack of a better term their charters look like. It depends. It is state specific. It is how they implement charter schools. Now in New York. Again, I mentioned there's accountability measures. You have to go through a renewal process every five years. Um, additionally, all charter schools in New York are nonprofit, meaning that all the money that comes in, they have to spend throughout the year. Mm -hmm. um, and you I mean you can create a rainy day fund, which is necessary no matter where you go. But additionally, it's just they there is so much kind of you have to also get independently audited every single year and then release those um, those results in your website and also to the state 
um, board of, or says State Department of Education. So everything, every charter school in New York State, you can view their financials every single year for mm -hmm. like whatever like this. So it's very clear about what's happening. It has to be independently audited. You can't like hire a person and say, hey, whatever, do me a favor. It doesn't work like that. So there's a difference between what occurred in California than what can occur in New York. Number one, it, it's very unlikely that it can happen in New York, mainly because of what I just mentioned, but also because again, every single charter school here is nonprofit. There is states that do have an issue with that. Michigan number being number one. Betsy DeVos and her family actually fought hard for for-profit charter schools, any sort of charter schools. For-profit tends to have a lot of the corruption and graft and all the other stuff that tends yeah, to occur. Yeah, it kind of seems one of those things yeah. that just shouldn't be for-profit. You're making money. I remember Pitbull but, but what it made sounds a charter like, what it, yeah. for music number one. I'm like, get the hell yeah, out of here. Yeah, like, but what it sounds like to me money. is that, is that it, se it seems like there needs to be reform in certain states and yeah. seems like maybe New York has a good model because we, we, we did it in a way that was correct and smart where maybe some of these other states, depending who is in the leadership, yeah. uh, maybe twisted things in a certain way I so agree. certain people could get paybacks. Exactly. And what it I believe is. in New York State should do is, one, they need to lift the charter cap to allow more charter schools. But what I like to see is more collaborative effort and also... I mean, when you look at education reform, it needs to be done at the state level, even in the local level, even at yes. a school level. It's not something that the federal government can do. You can set kind of the parameters of what how it should be done. Like President Obama did something called Race to the Top Funds, where he was offering tons of money to school leaders in order to implement reforms within the traditional public school system. And that is something in the state education department, I'm like, that is something that's very important. And I think it was it worked well because you saw education outcomes improve, especially around different socioeconomic levels, whether it be white kids in rural West Virginia or being black kids in the Bronx or the Spanish kids in the Bronx and Queens. I mean, right mm. You saw a lot of improvements and a lot of them had to do with charters, number one. Um, so is that the remedy? Do you think that's the remedy is... is yeah. is bringing charter schools into these areas that have underperformed and getting rid of public schools? No, or no, I don't. I mean, I, you look at what happened in New Orleans, and that was an exemplary case in mm. how that occurred. Don't get me wrong, that was unbelievable what they've been able to do and continue to do. And New York, you can also see charter schools here do outperform their neighboring traditional public school. That is mm. absolutely what's occurring. But what I would like to see is to implement some of the stuff that's occurring within the charter schools, like I mentioned, create that organizational chart, have a board of trustees made up of community leaders, community parents, plus business people, everything else, and hire executive director, director that's gonna be in charge of all hiring and budgeting, and then allow them to do their thing. You know what I mean? Allow them to do their thing, they're the professionals, and it let, have a teacher all of a sudden not follow such a stringent curriculum where all of a sudden their teachers, like their kids, may not be getting a subject let them slow down. Let them work it out. Yeah, let they're teaching. They're that. teaching for a test exactly. rather than, than educating the, the children. Exactly. Yeah. And what you're not seeing that as often. You're not seeing what you should be seeing. And for me, what I would like to see is that you implement a lot of these forms. You can work it out in the traditional public schools and make it more localized. Make it more accountable. Make it more performance based. Have adequate teacher training. Spend the investment in the money for new schools because there's a number of schools. I, f I feel like I think there was a. I remember reading articles. I think it was over 100 schools that still have lead contaminants oh, within wow. the schools. And this is we know how it affects developmental issues yeah. for kids, and that's a huge problem. And also so bring and bring these schools into the 21st century. I mean, yeah. the fact that you brought a, a coding program into your school. I mean, yeah. that's. 
that's huge. huge. I mean, yeah, a lot a lot of these schools haven't changed their curriculum since the yep. 1970s, 1960s, the same thing over and it's over. and it's yep. we're living in a different world. We have to prepare our, our the next generation for 100%. for different challenges like, and different tasks. Be innovative, be accountable, and I do believe you need to increase pay. I think you, there is a, there's a sense of smaller classrooms, but if you don't have smaller classrooms, add the support. Like we have a bunch of teacher assistants. Like if we have a classroom that's like over the size of 25, for example, so you have a lot of support within the classroom. And again, be be accountable, but also have the reviews. Make sure there's not bad teachers in the room. And if there is a teacher that's messing up, offer them the training that they need. Pull them aside, take them out of the classroom, Offer them more, like, you know, sit down with other good teachers so you can learn what they're doing in their classroom in order to actually do better. Yeah, retrain them. Yeah, don't like put them in a, them. Yeah. in a room yeah. with uh, don't Maxim just, magazine. Exactly. <laughs> don't, like, stick them in a rubber room. Like, just actually offer them an avenue to get better. Like, that's it. And, it's, like, and, yeah. it's important. And, uh, and, and I do believe also that, that, uh, that Senator Sanders' position is to, 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 uh, to ban for-profit. Uh, charter yeah, schools. Yeah, I mean, I, do, uh, I believe. I think any for-profit, uh, even colleges, which Obama tried to virtually ban anyways, um, and, you know, they got to reverse, but there's things like that by Stronger Field that should be banned as well. Uh, question, uh, uh, last yeah. thing I, I, I want to get into in this mm -hmm. before, because uh, we got to wrap up, sure. uh, but, uh, um, you know, I want to know what your thoughts are um, about, uh, specifically, because um, we talked a little bit about uh, um, Specialized high schools. Sure. Um, I want to know what your your thoughts are uh, specifically about New York City's uh, um, high school system because I'm 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 somebody who grew up in New York City mm -hmm. um, and uh, had to basically start the college process in seventh and eighth grade yeah. with with uh, applying to high schools. But that's public public high schools. But that's amazing parenting. Um, like you know, I mean, that's also parenting, but also you probably had great teachers in that too. I I, yeah. I did have great teachers, yeah. but I do, but you know, I know I do have friends and other people that weren't as as sure. as, as lucky um, and that to tells you uh, something right there. Uh, to to be able to to go to certain schools, and also yeah. and, and and also let's keep in mind, and I think this kind of goes back to, uh, and I'll give you a chance to respond. Just sure. want to preface it real quick. Sure. Um, and this you know this definitely goes back to what you were saying, how you know we should raise the number of specialized high schools. Yeah. So, but there is a finite amount of seats. You know, uh, there's 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 thousands and thousands of kids of in New York City. Of course. Um, it's a very small place. You know, I um, my school uh, was one of the one of the best schools in the city. I went to a school called Beacon. Mm -hmm. uh, they only allowed about uh, I believe about 300 kids at most mm -hmm. per class. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, uh, per uh, you know freshman class coming in. Mm -hmm. So total about 1,200. You know, a little less than that because kids drop out and sure. things like that. Um, but uh, very great graduation rate. Mm -hmm. It was actually an um, extremely diverse school on the Upper West Side. Mm -hmm. um, I believe at the time the split was about 40% white, 30% Hispanic, 20% um, wow. African American, 10% wow. um, um, Asian, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, other Beacon, races. even to this day, is an exemplary school when it comes to diversity. Oh, you know about it? Yeah, I'm very familiar. Oh, from what I've read, I don't know yeah. too much about everything about it, but yeah. I've read about it. The reputation follows, like it mm. precedes itself. It, w it was it, w it was a um, it was a great experience. I yeah. will say that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but you know, uh, um, but again, you know, a, a finite amount of seats. Mm -hmm. You know, I I I had to write I had to write an essay, mm -hmm. um, hit, give that in, then come in write three essays exactly. and mm -hmm. uh, they didn't really believe in tests they believed in essays sure. and like things like that it was a mm -hmm. um, you know uh, portfolio based assessment uh, uh, you know centered school yeah. uh, and uh, I even gave in a video awesome. um, to, uh, yeah. to, to you know and they, it allows they, you to be creative and you they know? said to, they said yeah. to me they said we're, there's a very good chance that we're not going to be able to, to watch this because you know yeah. they have you know Everything. you know tens of thousands of kids literally sure. applying I, th I think I think when I applied I think there was about um, 
I, th I think it was a, a little more than 10,000 kids applying. Sure. I, it could have even been more than that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was a little, little bit ago. Mm -hmm. But uh, um, but you know, even with that number to 300. Mm -hmm. uh, so really, what I'm really what I'm getting at is is I just want to know because you know I'm sure you came from a completely different um, educational background sure. growing up, where you well, probably yeah, did, did went you go to, to public your, school. I did. And you yeah. probably and went to your local, yes, and you um, Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Massachusetts. And you probably went to, which is how most of America is set up. You probably went to a local high school mm -hmm. where, where you know, everybody in the district just went to. You know, it's that you didn't. I, I'm assuming yeah, you didn't apply. Town. Yeah, everyone in town just went to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I mean, we were very good. I mean, the so what are your thoughts on like the New York City system? Because I mean, it's a very, very, um, it's it's a it's a very rigorous system. It's very nerve wracking. It's very, uh, it, you know, it, it, it gets I mean, everybody very amped up in eighth grade. I think there is a need for more college prep like you know when they focus on that i think that's a good thing um but additionally it's not what you experience is not happening like 90 percent of the other high schools exactly in state, mm -hmm. uh, or in the city itself yeah um and that's a sad thing because that stuff should be replicated especially um some of these challenging courses for example like uh, i forget what they called for some like I don't want to slip in my mind right now, um, but there's a name for the type of courses that are like very challenging, um, and there's special courses that basically amplify, you know, the educational attainment of a certain student. Mm -hmm. um, but I forget the name, but that's not available throughout all the schools. That's just there for some of the best schools, and that's it. And that's not fair because I think that leaves out, and you miss the boat on a lot of students that are able to actually tap into their creativity, tap into their potential, everything else, whereas they're missing it. Um, but I want to I want to say like I want to give you my own a personal story that's going to be probably a good anecdote and then I can answer this question. Um, so when I was growing up, so from Michigan, I was born in New Hampshire, but I grew up in uh, half my life. I mentioned Methuen, Massachusetts, and the other and Lawrence, Mass. Lawrence, Mass was very pretty much all Dominicans, all Puerto Ricans, and it was not the safest place to live, and it wasn't the best, and it was a very low socioeconomic area. Um, but when we lived in Methuen, literally the town right over, that was pretty diverse, like with white, black, Hispanic, everything, but much better school system. So when we moved to Lawrence, my parents lied about their address so then I can, so we can all go to the school system over in Methuen. <laughs> that's illegal. Like, you know, that's it. But my yeah. parents basically did everything before. And then we, then we moved to you New Hampshire. You, you do what you got to do for your kids. Exactly. And then yeah. New Hampshire, for example, we grew up in a town called Londonderry, New Hampshire. And Londonderry was very well off. And we had a very good education system. Like, very, very good one. Uh, public school system there. Um, out of high school, we had 400 people in a graduating class. Or, excuse me, we had 400 students coming in to remember my freshman year and 392 graduated. And I forget over 370 went to college. So like, you know, it was very different there. Um, but that shouldn't happen. I was exposed earlier on that there is this inequity between educations, so like the edu wherever, wherever you live based on your zip code. And I was exposed to that when I was five years old, you mm. know, and for me, I knew that wasn't fair. So in this discussion where it says, what can you do, I think, you do implement a lot of these reforms that I talked about earlier, but yeah, you try to create a system where teachers are able to share best practices across the board with everybody and also hold teachers accountable that are not following these rules or following these best practices. There is such an opportunity to improve schools all across the state and all across the city, especially in the city, and we're just not doing it. And I don't know if it's based off laziness. I don't know if it's based off just being so used to what the current systems are. And I'll tell you this, I do believe that de Blasio 
has done a great thing in hiring the new school's chancellor, Richard Carranza. I think he's implementing a lot of stuff starting off at the city education department that I think is going to have a trickle-down effect um, to the schools itself, and I think hopefully he has enough time to implement a lot of the reforms that he's searching to or he's looking to do, um, and I think it's promising. But additionally, you need to be a little bit more radical in its approach as far as mm -hmm. changing the school system and making sure that, look, if you're a shitty teacher, excuse my language, get out. Yeah. We don't want you here. Yeah. And also, if you are a failing school, change the administration. Get rid of the principals. Get rid of the failing teachers. Do everything you need to do to implement radical change. And then all of a sudden say, hey, you know what? Oh, Bronx Science has this great curriculum. Let's see what they're doing. What can we do? Can we, can we bring in teachers here and then start off saying, hey, we're going to take kids starting off in the ninth grade, and that's it. We're going to take right now in the high school and, let's say, ninth grade, take those middle school kids, take them ninth grade, ninth grade, follow that curriculum, and then same thing. And then you build up until you have a full function in high school again. But you start off not, like, all of a sudden throwing kids for 10th, 11th, 12th. No, you, there's kids that are going to be lost, and I, we all know that. Because not every yeah. student also has the opportunity, like you did, exactly. Sam, exactly. to apply yeah. to these schools. Because, you know, they might have a parent who just doesn't know how, how the system works. Exactly. Exactly. Maybe they're, mm -hmm. you know, kids of immigrants or they come yeah. from a low socioeconomic background. And so, yeah. well, I think exactly. also, I mean, just, just speaking to my own personal experience, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, I had, I had, not only did I have a mother, but I also had teachers that were very aware of the system and yeah. made us very aware of the system exactly. before, because, you know, when you have, when you, when, when you have, uh, you know, when you're in high school, mm -hmm. uh, your, your parents and, and certain teachers, if they're, if they're on top of this stuff, uh, you know, as they should be, they make, they make their child and their, their students aware, these grades are going to affect you and what you get into exactly. for college. Exactly. So, you know, you got to focus up and especially in your junior year, you know, and the same thing as, uh, the s same thing with, uh, um, with middle school, you know, mm -hmm. not a lot of kids really uh, have to go through this in the country. But like, in, with my mom and my teachers, they were like, "You gotta, you gotta, uh, you know, uh, you know, get it together in middle school, because yeah. it's gonna, because it's gonna affect your trajectory for high school I and then college." I personally think that's fucked up, honestly. <laughs> it's well, nerve-wracking. Because it's, it's nerve-wracking. And, and it, it happens right. in middle school, but also in the city. It, it, sometimes it happens as early as kindergarten. Uh, for for certain schools, where like you're preparing this kid who's not even fully developed, uh, you know, I know personally myself, like I didn't really give, you know, two shits about school until maybe tenth, eleventh grade. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, so, you know, yeah. you, when you're telling someone who's twelve, who's not even hit puberty yet, like. Mm -hmm. Hey, like you really got to bunker down. This is going to affect like, your this, trajectory this, for college, yeah, exactly. like, for your what entire high school life. You go to. Uh, <laughs> it's it's a bit daunting, and and mm -hmm. and it's um, I think that's also maybe what scares some people too, or, or turns some people yeah. off as well too. I mean, I get that, but it has to be hard. Education shouldn't be easy. Like well, learning shouldn't be easy. You should always constantly challenge yourself. No, of course, yeah. but you, but you shouldn't you shouldn't uh, set someone's entire livelihood up uh, for them starting at like twelve years old. Think about. You know all the all the. <laughs> you're, you're okay with I, that? I, I'm perfectly fine with that. To be honest, I, with you. I think that's ridiculous. Well, I think everything. well, I think the only way yeah. for that to really happen is is again yeah. like there's a finite amount of seats, and I think the only way to really make that, uh, you know, uh, more practical is is really what Denny was saying in the beginning. You mm -hmm. know, 
you know, uh, give 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 a yeah. give, have a bigger number of specialized high schools. Yep. Have a bigger number of of schools like Beacon. You know, yeah. Beacon exactly. isn't a specialized high school. Exactly. There's schools like Beacon. School. There's a school like Elro, Eleanor Roosevelt. You know, there there there's schools uh, even environmental. Uh, there you know there there are tons of there's great public schools in, public in schools the city. Here. And yeah. it's like they all should be trying to replicate the curriculum. And if they don't, I mean, again, wholesale change. And then just start with a new class of kids, starting that ninth grade, to create the community, create the environment, which is very important. I mean, look at LeBron James School. He took the worst performing kids, basically, in Akron. That's how it started off. He started mm. off by saying, I'm going to take the kids that have been kicked out of classes, who's been, all, been failing all the tests, everything else like that, and I'm changing the environment of the school, and I'm making learning fun. But additionally, it's still a city-ran school. It's not a charter school. It's a, just he's funding it. He created the building, all that other stuff. But he, made it, it, he basically made it important to change the atmosphere and the environment. They welcome the kids in there. They always happy. Everything. Hey, else you're, like you're that. a product of your surroundings, especially at that age. Exactly, and and you, and you respond to what you're surrounded and by. The outcomes have been absolutely amazing. Yeah. Just uh, just so you said, absolutely, absolutely amazing with these kids. Yeah. So it's important. Sorry. Yeah, Did yeah, I no, answer no. your question? By the way, I know we went a really roundabout way of doing it, but well, I yeah. So I mean, I so I guess so I so I guess you are impressed with the w with the schooling system to some degree here. I, of course. Um, I mean, at least yeah. at least the system in 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 theory of how it should work. It is. I mean, I'll tell you right now. I. I'm a product of public schools. I love schooling. I love education. And I just think that you can change the bad schools. And you can also learn from charter schools. It's, an, it's not a zero-sum game which a union tries to fight all the time saying, oh, well, if they're gaining something, we're losing. Like, that's bullshit. First of all, you're in it for the kids, not in it for your goddamn selves. Yeah. Like, it's just for the goddamn parents and the, st and the students. That's and the all teacher's that union is one of the strongest unions, especially are. to support Real, uh, yeah. presidential like, candidates. Yeah, too. and at the end of the day, it needs to be a support between both of them because they're serving the same communities. They're really trying to improve all, all these kids' lives. Well, they're supposed and to have the same end goal. And exactly right. And, yeah. like, for me, it's just like, have that type of mentality where you're working together in a collaborative effort to make these schools better. And if you don't, then what the hell are you doing? Real, uh, real, real quick, uh, because we do, we definitely do have know, to wrap right, up, yeah. but I, but I, it's this is so interesting and I want to <laughs> get your thoughts on this. Uh, um, this isn't really about uh, the, the actual uh, classroom part of education, but, you know, uh, going back to uh, the New York City public school system and how there's, you know, you literally, when, when, uh, when, when you're in eighth grade, you get a, a Kaplan-sized book, sure. uh, you know, what you would get for college of, mm -hmm. of all of these, uh, all these schools ranging all around the five boroughs, mm -hmm. all these public schools. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that's a lot. There's thousands of schools. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's, I'm sure you're aware, there are schools yeah. inside of buildings. There are like five different schools inside yeah. of one building. Mm -hmm. Like you have Martin Luther King, um, uh, on the Upper West Side, they will have five different schools, yeah. and sometimes mm -hmm. those schools aren't even all high schools. Sometimes exactly. there'll be a middle school. Sometimes yeah. there'll be a special needs school. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, you know, a lot of a, a, a lot of just schools crammed into one yeah. building. Yeah. Uh, they don't have even their own space. Mm -hmm. uh, um, what is your What are your thoughts on? With that, it comes it comes with uh, that you do, that you have less extracurricular activities spread around these schools, and you have less uh, you have less uh, um, sports. Yeah. Uh, you know, my school. 
most of the schools in the, in the city, they don't have football teams. Yeah. Um, uh, mm -hmm. A lot of schools don't have baseball teams. Yeah. A lot of schools don't have basketball teams. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the more common uh, um, sports within the public school system is actually bowling. Yeah. Because uh, it's, uh, it's yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it, there's there's a lot of schools that are like that. I mean, yes, p basketball is pretty common, sure. too. Something that's indoors. Something but, uh, yeah, something that you can have the space for. Because yeah. if you have football, then it's like, where are you going to play? There's only exactly. Central Park, Riverside, and then, like, you know, the, you know, yeah, exactly. Like you know, there's there's only so many parks, yeah. and, and there's so many schools. So, I, I just just a little curious. What do you think about like you know the extracurricular activities that are probably being you know very. I think uh, it's shameful that we don't have a full slate of programs from every single sport, literally every single after school program that's capable that we should have for our kids. Um, there was a Harvard study that came out a few years ago saying that the social, emotional, and educational learning for all students um, that participate in after school programs. Um, end up being like almost 10 times better than a kid that does not. And mm -hmm. that directly leads to what their life is going to uh, end up to be. And I think it's shameful when we don't have enough after-school programs for everybody. Yeah. And for me, to be honest, I remember I had a discussion years ago, I think when I was in college, a um, long time ago, it was 15 years ago. <laughs> so, yeah. And I remember having a discussion where um, I, I basically said, I'm like, I feel like all after-school programs should be mandatory for kids. Mm -hmm. Like up until the age of 16, it should be mandatory. And for me, there's so much, so much benefit for kids that take after school programs. Like I mentioned earlier, everything, social, emotional, educational, everything. And it just allows them to learn more, but also communicate with others outside of the classroom, develop yeah. relationships, all these other benefits. That is social, like college, right? We, you know, people tell you college that, you know, what's more important, education or just a social ability or the ability to meet all these different people that are from everywhere. It's both. I think it's 50-50. It's yeah. not only educational, but it's it helps aspect. you. It helps you grow as a human being. It helps you grow as a person. And yeah. I think after-school programs, no matter what it may be, whether it be debate team, coding, you know, baseball, basketball, whatever, it should be all that. Drama club, music, whatever, all that stuff should be available. And I honestly feel like, let's say if I ever became something like, let's say, governor of New York, my whole, my whole platform would be focusing on education and my number one thing would be put as much money as possible into not only building new high schools like you mentioned because it's a thing it's it does a disservice when I think you have too many different schools within a building, especially if they're like not all high school kids or all middle school kids. Yeah. I do believe like when it comes to special needs, which they, happens more often than, than people would think. Yes, exactly. Especially in New York. And, yeah. And I just, there's believe, just not a lot of space too. Exactly. Yeah. You know, special needs kids. I do believe all of them needs to be mingling and communicating with other students too. Within with their grades. We were we were so, we yeah. were we were talking about that. Uh, and and uh, we we had a guest on uh, um, okay. Lenny, and mm. uh, he, he was mm -hmm. talking about that. There's like the stigma grows from being separated. Exactly, and you yeah, shouldn't yeah. be separated. I think they should be within the traditional system with the kids and the grades and everything mm -hmm. else. I remember when I was growing up, that, that was the case. I think, like, you know, at the end of the day, when it comes to education, there is so much opportunity to do the right thing. Um, yes, you spend more money to build new schools, increase, lessen the size of the classroom, pay the teachers way more. Um, but additionally, accountability, there's reform. There's, you know, for any issue, really, there's not one magic pill. But it really takes a belief that you can turn this around and being hopeful about it. And at least now there's also, uh, you know, models that people can look at and say this yeah. worked and this worked and yeah. this worked. It's like share, share best practices. That's one of the easiest and that's the lowest hanging fruit like New York City can take is work with all these charter schools, all the best performing traditional public schools and say, hey, these are the best for every level. Start pre-K to elementary to middle school to high school. 
these are the best practices. Yeah, this is Share that yeah. and then implement those things. That's the lowest hanging fruit. Yeah. It's the lowest hanging fruit. Do that. Yeah, <laughs> you definitely. <know>? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> this has been an amazing podcast. Yeah, it's really, great, great conversation. I, great conversation. I, I learned a lot as well. Um, uh, really, really happy to have you here, Denny. Uh, Thank you for having me. I really, I'm, I'm very interested in what, uh, uh, you know, you have in store for the world uh, coming up. Oh. Uh, you know, <laughs> I... I could see uh, a higher office. Uh, Sam, Sam's enamored. Sam, I, Sam might have a man crush on you. I, 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 no, so I, you know. I really, I really applaud your passion, though. Um, Thank you. Uh, across that. the board, you know, with education and and uh, um, and in the political system, uh, it's. Uh, um, very inspiring. Thank you. Uh, and I love it. I love this yeah. country. I just love everything about it, and I just, you know, it, I'm gonna misquote it, but it's a uh, uh, RFK quote. Is like people see. Like, you know, that quote was like, people see something that's happening and they ask why I see it and I ask why not, you know, yeah. it's like that type of thing. It's like you always have to be hopeful about something. Yeah. You can't just say that that's it. And that's yeah. like no matter what, what's happening in this current moment, that's it. That's the best that it can be. It can't. Um, so. so, yeah. So, uh, Denny, uh, you want to shout out uh, your uh, your social media handles uh, in case uh, people want to follow uh, your work? Absolutely. So um, I have a website, DennySalas.com. That's D-E-N-N-Y-S-A-L-A-S.com. It's more of the political website if you want to contribute to my campaign, anything else like that, um, especially for any future campaigns that I may get involved in. Um, but also my IG, Instagram, and Twitter account are at Real Denny Salas. Um, so just all together, Real Denny Salas. First there lesson. you go. Give, okay. him a, give him a follow. Amazing. All right. Well, uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, like I said, this has been an amazing podcast. Really, really happy to have you, Denny. Thank you guys um, so much. It was very enjoyable. Oh, yeah. It was, it was, so it was great. Um, all right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, we will see you next time, and we are out. Peace.